The scripture reading from today, um, from the Old Testament, is from the book of Micah, and the New Testament, the book of Peter, First Peter. So uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now from First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Pithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience in Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor by the, at the res, re, revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was in, in indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have not been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent, by, uh, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that, Luke. Today marks the start of a new sermon series in the book of 1 Peter. And we are learning about suffering and salvation in exile. Uh, the book of 1 Peter is an excellent epistle to cover all the various themes that we have covered so far in this past year of preaching. So if you remember, uh, we covered the wisdom of James in learning how to endure trials and wise living in the community of Christ. Uh, we, we covered the book of Mark, uh, the suffering servant of Jesus, how his miracles point to the salvation that he would win for us and his authority as the Son of God. And we covered the book of Ruth and how the famine leads to the harvest for Ruth and the people of God who are dealing with famines of their own. Um, and in Proverbs, how do we live as exiles? in the digital age. So, so 1 Peter is really going to be a, a culmination of everything that we have been learning in 2023. And, and these first 12 verses that we just read are the roadmap of what scripture is telling us about suffering and salvation in the exile. Uh, but before we dive into that, uh, could we pray together? Let's pray. Father, may your word give to us an endurance to run the race well. May we know today that we are chosen by you. 
called to endure and know that your gospel gives us the grace to persevere. We pray your word would illuminate this now to us. May your spirit speak through the preacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So I'll start off by asking the principal question that Peter is trying to address in this letter. How do we make sense of life when we are not yet in our heavenly home? How do we make sense of life when we are not yet in our heavenly home? Maybe to ask the question in a different way, how do we face day to day when life seems monotonous or maybe even unjust uh, when we're dealing with great suffering? What do Christians look to carry them through incredibly difficult seasons, particularly Christians who already feel marginalized by society and the world around them? After all, for many of us who have noticed what life has looked like in the past several years, we might feel as though the hope of living the Christian life is fading. Maybe many of us might feel discouraged um, by what is happening here. We feel more and more like exiles in a world increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. So, so what gives us the hope to not just survive, but flourish without becoming resentful, angry, bitter, um, or even responding in ways uh, that go against our Christian witness? Uh, this is the giant question of First Peter. A letter written by the Apostle Peter to the elect exiles scattered across the region which is now modern-day Turkey. All those different regions that are presented in verse 1, that is, if you can imagine on a world map, where modern-day Turkey is. So this letter was written from Rome, where Peter saw the signs of the upcoming persecution all around him, and he wants to tell the church how to live in a world where suffering will become all that we know when we are alienated from the world around us and when we don't know how to respond. And so that is why this, this, this book of the Bible is so, uh, so pertinent to us today in everything that we have talked about this year. Uh, we, we say this a lot, the Bible is both timely and timeless, both imminent and transcendent. And today we are going to examine Peter's main message to a people of God longing for real hope in times of upcoming crisis that those who are chosen by God have a real reason to endure suffering. They have a salvation that carries them through these hard struggles. So today we're going to examine what it means to be a chosen people of God, because that's sort of the main thesis of of how we ground our hope. So we're going to answer three questions here today. Who are the elect people of God? What do the elect people of God have? And what do the elect people of God know? So let's start off and consider who are the chosen people in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter begins in verse 1 by giving us key information about the book. It's a letter from the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, who along with the other disciples laid the foundation of building up the church. So Peter is writing this letter, but it's not just any kind of letter. It's an authoritative message speaking on behalf of Christ to the church to tell them what we need to hear. Peter's letter has authority as one, as an apostle of Christ. And this becomes really important to consider because of Peter's audience. He's writing to what he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
all regions uh, that are, again, in that modern-day Turkey. And where is Peter in writing this letter? Um, at the end of this letter in chapter 513, he says, Peter gives greetings from the church in Babylon, which is actually an allusion to where uh, the Roman Empire is and where Rome is back in Peter's day. So Peter is writing this in an interesting position in the church's life. It's around 62, 63 AD, uh, as most scholars believe, and at a time where the Christians are beginning to experience fuller hatred for their beliefs. The Emperor Nero is beginning to ramp up persecution of Christians, and Peter is able to see the signs of the times. Now, it wasn't like Christians were beloved prior to Nero persecuting them, but Peter knows that things are about to get much, much harder. And so he writes to these scattered elect exiles across the Asia Minor uh, to prepare them for the suffering that is to come. And as we'll find as we go through this letter during this series, Peter is equipping the saints to endure suffering well through holy lives and through submissive lives. So let's examine this further by asking ourselves another question. Um, who are these elect exiles, exiles really? And see, in my belief, this is where the book of 1 Peter becomes very, very interesting, depending on who you think the audience of this book is. Uh, the debate surrounding who the audience is actually makes a huge difference in how you interpret the passages, the exegesis, and, and about how Peter's life has changed, which I'll get to at the end of the sermon. There are those who believe that Peter is writing to exiled Jews scattered across the lands. Uh, there are some that believe as Peter is writing to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, but, but I'm going to make the argument that I, I think is most compelling um, by Dr. Mike Kruger, um, professor of New Testament Reformed Theological Seminary and president of the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, is that the primary audience of 1 Peter is that this letter is written to Gentiles. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 14, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see that the readers lived in ignorance, pointing to an idolatrous past that was not connected to the Jewish story. Chapter 1, verse 18 says that they have been redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers, which would be a very odd statement to give if that community was just Jews. Um, but perhaps the biggest piece of evidence that, that Peter is writing to a primarily Gentile audience comes from chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Now, here's the key line here. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. See, if you think that the audience here is primarily a Jewish audience, then why would the Gentiles be surprised that the Jews would not indulge in such blatant sins. Uh, so Mike Kruger and, and, and most of a Reformed scholarship believe that the surprise comes from the fact that these are Gentiles, not joining Gentiles in wild living. So the weight of evidence that we have in, within the book of 1 Peter is that Peter is writing to a mostly Gentile audience about the coming persecution that they will be facing from Rome. But how do the chosen know that they are chosen? What can help them stay confident in knowing that they are still a part of God's people, even as Gentiles, even as those who would be considered outside the camp, especially when suffering comes? Peter wants to remind them here in verse 2, as he looks 
as he looks at how he grounds that someone knows that they are chosen by God. How does someone know that they are chosen by God? Well, verse 2 says this. The elect exiles are known by God the Father, sanctified in their lives by the Holy Spirit, for the obedience to follow Christ who has shed his blood for them, the sprinkling of his blood, alluding to Exodus 24, to Moses, where he sprinkled the blood of the covenant to demonstrate that God had sealed his promises to the Israelite people. Peter's drawing from that language to say to these elect exiles, uh, these Gentiles, that the grounding for your hope, the grounding of what it means to be an elect exile is in this Trinitarian God that we worship. In other words, to put it in the negative, Peter doesn't say, oh, you are known to be an elect exile by how strong your faith is. You are known to be an elect exile by how sanctified you are by your good works. You are known to be an elect by how obedient you are to your will and to your sacrifices. And yet, somehow, um, now I'm just speaking pastorally, uh, when I ask people, hey, how do you know that you're saved? Somehow we always put it in these categories of what we think how strong our faith is, what good works we have done, and how much confidence we have in the sacrifices that we have made. We get it all twisted. When we think about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know that you are chosen by God and a part of his family, so many times we make it about ourselves. I know I'm saved because I've done all the things that a good Christian does this week. I'm sanctified because I go to the church and I help the community. I sacrifice according to the law and give a tenth of all I have. And we suddenly start sounding like another famous character in Scripture. Friends, these activities are a wonderful part of the Christian walk. But they miss the point entirely about what it means to be elect. It is through this Trinitarian work, the economy of the Trinity, of how God makes us into an elect people that is completely divorced from our effort. Your effort of good does not make you elect. Your exalted God is the one who has called you before, like before eternity passed, cleanse you with the Holy Spirit who guides your life and leads you to obedience, to be underneath the authority of Christ and covered by his righteousness through his shed blood. If you miss any part of that equation, you will inevitably lead to doubt and discouragement in your relationship with God. See, if you miss the foreknowledge of God the Father, you'll always be scared if God really has chosen you, if God really loves you. Miss the sanctification of God the Holy Spirit, and you'll be like Martin Luther before the Reformation, praying hours upon hours and always questioning on whether it was enough. If you miss the obedience to, the, to God the Son, Jesus Christ, then you'll become incredibly passive in your faith, and your faith will be self-serving and narcissistic. But if you understand this great work of the Trinity, you'll have a freedom knowing something about your relationship with God that will last forever. You will experience the knowledge and joy that God the Father has always loved you and chose you before the creation of the world. The Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss has this great line about the love of God. He says, The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in it that he never began 
to love us. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that there was never this point in time in history where God started to love you. God has always loved you. He has always cared for you. His love has always been an everlasting love for you. So you will know that the Holy Spirit will continue to sanctify you and has already sanctified you through the work on the cross so that you do not continue to lose heart even though you're a saint who sins. And you will know that your life has a purpose, a goal, an end that you are reaching towards because it's toward the glory of Christ alone. Do you see how all of these things fit together? So the two questions that Peter is raising in uh, these first two verses uh, really are this. Um, Do you want to struggle with assurance for the rest of your life? Then believe that you are elect because of the things that you do. But do you want the freedom of knowing that you're truly a Christian? Then surrender yourselves to what God has already done for you. He loved you before time. He's working in you now. And Jesus is calling you today to come to him. So, This is who the elect exiles are, the elect people of God are. But what do the elect people of God have? Uh, For this we read on. Verses three and four remind us that being the elect of God means that we have hope. Now this was certainly important for Peter's audience about to face brutal persecution. And this is certainly important for Christians today living in a post-post-Christian America. Uh, You see, this isn't any kind of just hope that's sort of just earthly, this hope is qualified as a living hope, the hope that we just sang about, a hope certified by the saving power of Christ on the cross for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in other words, there's a sense in which our our living hope is placed upon the certainty of the past. Because Christ has risen, Christ will come again, as we say every week during our communion time together. But the real force of living hope we have is looking to the future hope that we have uh, that that situations and suffering cannot take away. As these verses say, we have an inheritance that cannot rust, cannot be dirty, cannot, cannot be defiled through the passage of time. This word for inheritance was understood in the Old Testament as the promised land of God, but Peter takes it one step further. You see, it's not just a nation state anymore of Israel. It's Israel was a shadow of the totality of the plan that God is bringing the new heavens and the new earth and is redeeming all of the cosmos. You see, God, in other words, is not just meant for the Jews, but the entire world to see the inheritance that God has prepared for them and is preparing for us. In other words, the living hope is the universe and everything in it. A salvation that it's so great that Peter's saying its full revelation has not even yet been completed. It is bulletproof because God is protecting it. The market can't depreciate it. Moths cannot destroy it. It will never spoil in your pantry. Why? What does verse 5 say? because God's power is defending it. In other words, our living hope is based upon the power of God who is keeping us in his grip 
and whose preservation of our salvation will never fail. God is like the greatest defense the world has any seen in any sport, okay? It's the greatest garrison protecting the walls of the church. And you are not going to do anything that can take away the inheritance you have because God's power is behind it and he is awaiting to reveal it to you. Do you have a living hope like this? Because I guarantee you that you will find all other hopes in life wanting. The hope that life will go the way that you want to will, uh, dis- it will disappoint you when your best laid plans turn to mush. The hope that your strength will carry you through each moment will disappoint you when you inevitably feel lost and confused by the road ahead or when your mind or your body fail you. The hope that a house or a career, a life milestone, will finally make you complete as a person will disappoint you when that incomplete inheritance breaks down. Friends, the only certainty that I can offer you in life is the certainty of the living hope we have in our inheritance that God has for us. When you place your trust in something that is completely rock solid, you see, then you will never feel shaken by the events in between. Any other hope you place as ultimate will inevitably leave you embittered. It will leave you lost. It will leave you resentful. And it will leave you wanting. And this is precisely why Peter leads from the hope we have to the faith that we have. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 shows us that while God has promised to protect our inheritance in the living hope we have of the heavenly kingdom, he has not promised us that we would live a trial-free life. In fact, life could bring us trials that feel like this metaphorical fire. Wearing us down like gold in the fire that, that Christians can have through the, as though, um, you know, we're, we're just struggling with faith and we're wondering, are these trials really worth it? This is at the core of why doubt creeps in. Situations in our lives will constantly scream at us, look at how difficult this is. Why do you continue to believe in God? You know, it's commonly argued that the pain that you feel couldn't come from a God who is loving. The evils of this world are too much for us to maintain a credible faith. The day-to-day walking in obedience to Lord and His command seems a burden too great for seemingly so little a reward. But you see, these are all measures that try and center the experience upon human pleasure, human fulfillment, human joy as the outcome of faith. In other words, faith is the means to prevent a difficult life. And when faith in God is hard, this is when faith should die because it is evidence that your faith is not working. Now, I understand the inertia to feel this way. Um, For many of us, it's, it's been a difficult season of life for so many for so long. So many of us are longing for escape from our sufferings and pain of this world. But I think what is more powerful to the idea of true faith, real faith, is that real faith is shown to be real not when everything is going well and life is perfect, but real faith shows itself to be true when life is very incredibly difficult and challenging. 
In moving back to Maryland, I've been asked several questions both from within the church and outside the church. In light of everything that City of Hope has experienced over the past seven years, um, you know, hey, why did you choose to go to City of Hope? Now, <laughs> I understand to some degree uh, the curiosity of this question. Uh, the question itself is predicated on the idea, you know, you're looking for a pastoral position, the, the entire world is at your fingertips. Wouldn't it seem more comfortable to find something that on the surface level felt more stable or situated? Hey, you know, people need Jesus in Honolulu, Hawaii. I mean, why don't you uh, think about ministry there, right? I've given out various answers to this question. I've thought about this question, but the one thing I reflect, what truly was attractive to me in doing ministry here at City of Hope is the nature of this community, these people who have shown themselves incredibly and deeply resilient through the trials and the storms of the past six and seven years. In talking with so many of you one-on-one, -on -one, your faith has been tested through the worst of things. Things that would cause many to abandon the faith and leave it all together. And those things have shaped this community, this people, into a community that believes in a living hope. You see, the idea that pain and suffering are indicators that God cannot be trusted is not a defeater for Christianity, as many believe. Rather, there are millions of people living around the world, some in extreme poverty, some in oppressive systems and governments, some in unjust religious settings and persecutions that see the trials that they endure as greater evidence, you see, that their faith is real. It's not a defeater for them. Why? Because they know, maybe more in reality than we do, Jesus never promised the good life. Jesus never promised a world where Christians could be Christians and never have to face the darkness of the world around us. Our living hope isn't in the temporary situations from day to day that will always go right or that will always feel fulfilled. No, our living hope is the conviction of what we will see at the end of the story. And what a testimony such life gives when we're able to walk in this way. This is why we see how, though we are afflicted at every side, the end of verse 7 reminds us that it may be found to result in what? In our prosperity? In our uh, ultimate temporary happiness? No, in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the things we face demonstrate to us so much of how Jesus is faithful despite all the weight of what we face each and every single day. So I just want to say, thank you, church, for showing this to Paige and I over the last several months. Thank you for showing it to one another and encouraging each other. Christ is made glorious in us holding on to the faith through tears and agony. Christ is made glorious through seasons of serving God's people even when volunteers are thin and exhaustion has hit. Christ is made more glorious through persevering faith in the midst of death, sickness, injuries. Christ is made more glorious in a church that we don't even know might make it through the next week. 
You see, suffering is not because we desire to experience suffering. We're not, we're not sort of masochists looking for suffering in our life in order to make Jesus more glorious, but it, the inevitability of when the tragic happens and when we see each other enduring in the midst of unwinnable circumstances, that's when we see the, the power and the promises of these verses. That though we have not seen him, we love him and we believe in him and we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible as we long for the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And it's in the knowledge of that faith that we come to our final point today. We know who the elect are. We know what the elect have. What do the elect know? Verses 10 through 12 tells us that the Old Testament prophets gave testimony to this gospel news given by the Spirit of Christ, which when we think about what that, that phrase, Spirit of Christ, means, we're talking about the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-human Christ, the Christ that came before he was born, which told them about the sufferings that Jesus would undertake to save the world. So when we see in Isaiah the coming Messiah would be a man of sorrows and a suffering servant, that a child would be born to us, his name is Emmanuel, when we see in Malachi, this messenger from the wilderness that would proclaim the Messiah, that, that uh, uh, out of Egypt, the father has called his son in the prophet Hosea, that he would come to Jerusalem, lowly riding on a donkey in the prophet Zechariah, that he would be the sacrificial Passover lamb in Exodus. All of these pictures of the prophets of the Old Testament of how the Messiah would come, all that he would suffer through and all that he would suffer through us, this is now being fully realized. Now, as much as we would like to think that the prophets, when they were writing the Old Testament prophetic books, had you know, the exact picture of Christ, the, the imprint of his face, the, the exact circumstances and every detail of how he lived, uh, the prophets' visions were simply just that. They were visions, whispers, and types and shadows of the reality revealed by the Spirit of Christ. You see, they knew that there would be one day when these shadows would become complete, that the New Testament people of God would have before them the revelation of all that the Old Testament prophets preached about the gospel. And they proclaimed the sufferings of Christ to a people of God in expectation of his arrival. Now, what was the purpose of these sufferings of the Messiah. Why would a Messiah have to endure such things? You know, perhaps this might be your objection today to Christianity. Why did Jesus have to go through these sufferings? Tim Keller notes in this book, The Reason for God, that a person's complaint against the God of trials is that they can't put faith in a God that would cause suffering to be a part of the Christian life. Uh, so they'll say something along the lines of this. You know, all the philosophizing of the problem of evil does not leave the Christian God off the hook for suffering and trials. Uh, Keller rightly points out in his book that Jesus doesn't ask to be taken off the hook, you see. Uh, Jesus puts himself directly in harm's way in the trials and sufferings for us to deter demonstrate what the Christian life is to be. Faith in the fulfillment of the promise in even the face of death, even death on a cross. 
But see, Christ is not just a mere example of suffering. He takes these sufferings in our place. He takes on the cosmic abandonment of God the Father that was due to us because of sin that is now placed upon Him. Why does Jesus do this? Because the glory of Christ, you see, shines forth in redeeming not just His people, but making Himself more glorious and deserving of worship for the things that He endured. He enters into an unsafe world filled with unsafe dangers to demonstrate for us what living hope and a true faith is to look like. And he triumphs over all the trials in a way that has changed the world. And the people who cling to those hope of resurrection, the hope of heaven, we now have a joy of life that awaits us because of the sufferings of Jesus. This is what Peter is setting up the rest of his letter to reflect. That though we face unavoidable sufferings in this life, though we may not be able to grasp on this side of heaven why we face them, there is an inexpressible joy that flows from them. The testimony of Christ bleeding through our lives. You know, the sacrifices of time, energy, capital, and all the things, these are worth it because the glories of Christ come from them. And even the heavenly hosts, the angels, at the end of verse 12, long to see them. And the fact that we get to experience them as his created beings changes our whole perspective on suffering. Um, this is not a very popular message. I imagine if I was trying to grow the church properly, I wouldn't be saying suffer well, right? But this is what scripture gives us as the pathway of moving forward. Suffering doesn't mean that you are cursed. Suffering doesn't mean that God hates you. That the Lord is somehow not near to you, although that's certainly how we could be feeling. And we have language in the Psalms to express it, and we have permission to express it. You see, ultimately, suffering causes us to see, contrary to being farther away from God, that we are closer to Jesus than we could have ever imagined. You are nearer to the suffering Messiah. You are closer to his pains. You are seen and known and loved more powerfully than you could have ever have thought. And through these hard, difficult, painful things, the name of Christ is made great through you. His glory is being lived out through you. How do I know this? How do we know this? How does Peter know this? I told you that I'd be talking about the author and the audience of Peter at the end of this sermon. And here it is to make this point clear. You see, Peter, again, this disciple of Jesus is telling these group of Gentiles regarding these hard things. This isn't what we might expect from Peter if we know Peter's story. Do you remember his story? Back in Jesus' day, he wanted to use the power of the sword and constantly spoke in the language of defiance and rebellion and brashness. Uh, and so when we read 1 Peter, we, we read a very different Peter, don't we? Uh, this doesn't seem to be in line with Peter's character. But you have to see that a lifetime of following Jesus has changed him. A lifetime of being sanctified by the Spirit, of suffering for the sake of building Christ's church. This is a changed Peter who realized that being a disciple of Jesus is going a very different pathway than when he first met Jesus. And perhaps the biggest example of change is his heart towards the Gentile audience. 
that he was writing to. You got to remember, Peter was born a Jew, which held the Gentiles as a moral, religious, and political enemy all of his life. Even after Christ had resurrected and he's building the church in the book of Acts, he's struggling with this idea of trying to hold on to a Jewish-centeredness, right, of eating unclean food. And even Paul had to rebuke Peter in the book of Galatians, which was written before 1 Peter, for Peter's favoritism and ethnocentrism towards Jews over Gentiles. And yet here we are at the end of Peter's life and ministry. Peter realizes he has a living hope in the inheritance of Christ. And he has learned this through a lifetime of suffering. And so he pens this letter specifically to Gentiles spread across the Asia Minor. And as we will examine over the next coming weeks, he not only talks about this marginalized people group, but he also speaks to even groups within that group, the outcasts of outcasts in their in secular society of his day, slaves and wives. Not only Peter uh, is, is doing all of this, he's, he's intentional about addressing the very problems that they face and longs for them to endure in the midst of impossible societal circumstances. So think about this. The former disciple, once so focused on whether or not he would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, on whether or not Jesus could wash his feet, on his pride of believing that he would never deny Jesus, the one who tried to place his living hope on himself and, the, and center of his faith on his piety, is now looking outside of himself and demonstrating compassion, grace, love, humility, and enduring suffering and resting on Christ in a letter to a people group that he once hated and showed animosity toward. Do you see? In other words, as Peter has grown in his knowledge and understanding of the gospel news and message itself, it called for him to look beyond the needs and concerns of his own tribe and calls for him to have compassion and care for those whom God is longing to be encouraged, supported, and redeemed. He sees one who is his enemy now a part of the family of God and calls for them to see suffering and salvation in the exile as well. Church, First Peter reminds us that these trials that are temporary that are, are nothing in comparison to the inheritance we have in the salvation of Christ and the glories that await him through our transformed lives. Even when it becomes overwhelming, even when we feel burnt out, even when our faith is just hanging on by a thread, Peter's saying, look to your inheritance. Look to your heavenly home and see what the Lord is preparing for you. Rest not on the things that will never satisfy not on the hopes that you believe we bring about happiness apart from God. Rest on the truth that God has called you His. And watch about how He not only just changes your life, but changes the focus of your life to be lived for others as Christ has lived for us. If He could do it in Peter, He can do it again in you. He has kept you. He has sanctified you. And He is calling you to His Son, Jesus. Let's pray together.